so glad that you are here today. We are so glad that you have chosen to gather together as we, as we do something very significant. We, we worship together as God's people, and this is not an insignificant thing. There's a reason why we were commanded not to forsake the assembly together. It's because God meets his people. He is with his people in a unique way when his people gather together. And so this is a significant time, an important time. And so we're grateful that you are here to gather together. And we know that God has already been at work. He's already been at work to reveal himself as he is being worshipped in song. God is already being been present as he has spoken to many of you in worship. And, and we, we believe that God's going to continue to speak through his word because his word is living, it's active, and it's sharp. It pierces division, soul, spirit. And every bit of God's word is applicable. So um, we're, we're excited that you're here. Thanks for being here with us. Um, Aaron mentioned that uh, we are, next Sunday is our final Sunday. I don't mean final Sunday, but final Sunday before eight weeks from now. Uh, don't want to make people nervous. Uh, we are getting ready to go, but we're going to continue on the, the second half of Revelation 11. We're beginning the, the first part of the chapter this week, Revelation 11. Um, it, it seems somewhat strange, but we're going to see that God speaks through this chapter and really encourages us practically. This is not some distant, weird vision. And then uh, we're going to finish up with just a picture of God being glorified in his kingdom. Um, we, we trust, we know that God speaks through his word continuously. And so as, I, as we prepare to be away on sabbatical, we're excited not just to go away, but for you as well, because you get to have some guest preachers to come in and serve you with God's Word. And so there will be an eight-week break for you from Revelation. I know some of you are probably breathing a sigh of relief and like, wow, okay, we get a little bit of a break from Revelation. It's been a little heavy. It's been a little much. But um, I've been so encouraged personally in my soul and seeing Revelation in a very new and, and different, encouraging light, and it's been very good. But we're going to have an eight-week break during the summertime, and I'm just going to share with you a few of the people who are going to be here with us. We have Matt Nesberg. He's from the Actually 9 Church up in Spartanburg. It's called Cross Life Church. Across town, a sister church, uh, Todd Perkins will be with us the next week from East North Church. Then James Walden will be with us. He's coming from Riverside Community Church in Columbia. We got to hear from James at a Renew, I think, two or three years ago as well. And it was a great time together with him. And then uh, a, another church from Asheville, Brian Robbins, is going to be with us on July 7th. And then July 14th, we have a little bit of a homecoming. Chris Johnson will be back here with us. He is, he went out from us, not, I don't mean that in the, in the biblical negative sense, but in the positive sense. Um, he felt called to remain in Anderson when we moved to this building and said, you know, that's a long drive. And we've been doing this for like 10 years. They've been coming to our church from 45, 50 minutes away and said, we really feel called to help be a part of a plant there. They were part of a plant several years ago. He's now become an elder in that church. Um, we keep in touch and it's been great to see. And now he's going to come back and share with us. So I'm excited about that. You hearing what God's been up to in the Johnson's lives. And then Hunter Sipe, a church planter from Columbus, is going to be in Columbus, Ohio, is going to be with us on the 21st. And then we have another kind of homecoming as well, a, a guy who went from our church to help plant a church in Asheville, North Carolina, uh, named James Nysong, and he used to lead our youth, and um, we dearly love James and Kelly, their families, so they will be back here with us on July 28th. And then last but not least, we have a guy named Andy Nacelli. Uh, who will be visiting with us. Andy 
was a part of our church for a while. He come out of another church experience, came to our church, and was saying, hey, what do, you, what do you guys think about me being in your church? And we were pursuing him to consider, hey, would you consider being an elder? And then somebody else asked him to go be an elder at their church, and that guy's name was John Piper. And we said, you know, you'd be a moron for not going there. He relocated to Bethlehem Baptist Church, and he is a professor of New Testament. He's very gifted in teaching and preaching, um, exegeting God's word, and helping train up other guys to go out into ministry. And so Andy has been very fruitful at Bethlehem Baptist, and we rejoice in that. But he's going to come back. He actually emailed, said, hey, can I come back? I'm going to be in town. We're like, yes, you can. We would love it. And by the way, perfect timing. So He'll be here the final Sunday that uh, we'll be back on August 4th. So we are looking forward to the time. I think this will be a rich time of teaching. What, I want to say a couple things. Don't check out during this eight weeks of sabbatical. Don't think, oh, you know what? The senior pastor's not here. We're, we're just not going to come to church today. No, I think God is going to have fresh encouragement for you each and every Sunday. So don't check out and instead check in all the more. So don't let the summer be a time where you just pull back and you think, oh, we'll take it easy. We won't be here. Come every Sunday expecting that God will have a fresh word for our church and that his church gather. Because the church is not about me. The church is not about Aaron. The church is not about a personality. The church is the gathered people of Jesus Christ coming together, sharing in fellowship and encouragement, encouraging one another as all the more as we see the day approaching. Amen? So can I, can I get that commitment from you? Just say yes. I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you for that. Okay, thank you. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 11. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 11. We'll be continuing on today. Revelation 11 is a vision that God gave to John to assure the church. And this is God's holy inspired word. Then I was given a measuring rod, like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he's doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. They have the power of the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on all those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud 
and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God, the God of heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this imagery, these pictures that are meant to give us assurance for your church. God, thank you that this is to give us assurance about what happens to your church, about your plans for the church, and to answer the question of will your church stand? God, thank you for this confident expectation and hope that we have because of passages like this in Revelation. God, I pray that you would make this passage real to us today as it was to the original hearers. God, I pray that we would be encouraged that there would be things for us to hear and to keep and that this would be clearer to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Would you empower us by your spirit? Would you enable us by your grace? In your name, amen. Well, I still remember the very first discussion we had in a 300-level English class at George Mason University. We were, we were talking about poetry. Um, that was when I was really into poetry. It's not that I'm not now, but I don't get it half the time now. I, I told my kids, you know, I, I, I read Shakespeare now, and I'm like, huh? And I, and I actually understood it back in college, or at least I think I understood it. But we were having this discussion about a poem by John Donne. I can't remember the exact poem, but having a discussion about a poem by John Donne. He's actually one of my favorite poets. And in this discussion, we, it lasted like 30 minutes. And there was all kinds of banter because the professor had asked a question and said, what do you think this poem means? What do you think the author had in mind? What do you think this poem means? And so there were some wild and crazy ideas. And if you're in a, in a large class like that, there's discussions about what does this mean? You know, you heard somebody, well, this, well, here's what this means to me. And so, well, when I read this from this other author, here's what I think this means. And so you had all these suppositions about what this poem potentially meant. And then the English professor kind of let this go on, didn't interject much. And then she flipped to basically something where someone had asked Dunn what he meant by the poem. And it was dramatically different than what most of us got. And I remember learning something in that moment that, it's what matters is, is not what does it mean to me, what, what do we think uh, about this, and what do we think this potentially might say. What, what matters was the meaning of the author, the intent of the author. You know, all of us have been talking about our perspective, you know, so meaning was in the eye of the reader, but what we really got was, oh my goodness, when he explains it, it made sense of the poem that was a little bit confusing, and it made it more clear. Revelation is sometimes like that. We can approach Revelation in a way that was a lot of conjecture, and we can speculate, and we can bring other things into the passages that just aren't there. And I think that's actually most of Revelation is like that when we hear people write and talk about that. Most of my past, when I've, when I've learned and heard about Revelation, has been that. And so you have these Suppositions because there's language here that's symbolic, that's apocalyptic, that's prophetic in the same genre as Ezekiel and Daniel's prophetic language that there are symbology used here. It doesn't mean we don't take God's word literally. It actually means that God's word is actually more beautiful and full and rich when you understand what God means here. But you have to say, okay, what does the author intend? 
And to do that, you have to look in other places in the same book, in Revelation, and say, okay, when he says this word, what does this word mean in Revelation? And then you say, okay, well, where else in the New Testament does this word mean those things? And so as you begin to do that and say, okay, I'm not going to let other influences inform my reading of this text, but I'm going to let the book I'm reading inform the text, it changes everything. And you can see it more clearly. And I hope that's been your experience. You've been going through Revelation. You've seen, wait a minute, this is actually more applicable and approachable because we're just reading it for the text that it is and say, okay, what's the genre? What's the context? What, what is Scripture trying to say here? And if you remember, the very beginning of the book of Revelation, it's a revelation. It's an apocalypse, a revelation. What that means is a disclosure. This is not meant to be unclear. It's a bizarre picture we have here, okay? Let's just be really frank about this. It's a strange picture. But just like many artists convey things through pictures, um, it's meant to illuminate, to make things clearer. And so, Revelation is an apocalypse. It's a revealing, a pulling back of the curtain, what really is, what's really to be, what's really going on. And the intent of Revelation is to reveal Jesus Christ, his plans and his purposes for the church, and the fact that he is, he is already conquered, he is currently ruling and reigning, and he forever will reign. That's, a, that's the theme of Revelation, really, that we've been looking at all throughout this passage. And so if you, if you read a little that scarlet thread that goes throughout, that, that line that goes throughout Revelation, it kind of holds things together. It makes sense of the whole book. And so we come to this passage and say, oh, well, this seems really bizarre. What in the world? These two guys and these 1,260 days, these 42 months, and there's all this weirdness and there's killing and, and then the beast and the earthquakes. What is God saying? Well, I believe he has something clear to say here to the church. The original church, when they received this, they wouldn't have had all the speculation. They didn't have all the speculation that we have. They would not have interpreted in light of 1,800 writings that we have, but that many have brought into this text that weren't there. How would the church have read this? How would they have been encouraged? How would this have been revealed or made clear for them without getting bogged down in the details? And so uh, let me encourage you, there's places where the details of Revelation are not clear to us. We don't exactly understand everything. Don't get bogged down in the details. It's not meant to be a book like that. But there's things that were very, very clear for the church. Now, I want to say something else too. If you're coming to this church and you have a different perspective, we really encourage you to dig into scripture, but we, we also want to, you to know that we respect your perspective. And it's okay if you see some things differently, but don't miss the intent of the author here. Don't miss the intent of the author here. The author, author, author who is ultimately God, he meant to disclose some things for us to hear and to keep. That's what he told us at the very beginning of Revelation. Always keep that in mind when we're reading Revelation. John's been speaking about the church. What's been going on? Let's read, the, let's read the passage in context. So John has been speaking about what will be going on when these trumpets of God's judgment blow. He's been talking about that in the prior chapters. Jesus has taken up the scroll of God's plans and his purposes. He's opened them up. He's unveiled God's plans and purposes Now they no longer remain hidden, all those things that we don't understand, that we will not see, but overall his purposes and his plans have been revealed, they're clear. We see that God is in the the process of leaving people over to their idolatry and being taken over by those things. We see these, these trumpets of judgment blow for man's idolatry. John's been explaining that What's behind this idol worship is demonic influence. We've seen that in the previous chapters. The church shouldn't be confused when facing persecution. They shouldn't be tempted to give up or to give in. 
The church shouldn't take mingling with ideology of the world and and dabbling in idolatry lightly. In the previous chapters, we've seen that it's demonic. There's, There's demonic forces behind idolatry. And yet the Lamb of God has taken up the scroll and he's in the, process, he's in the process of bringing all things about. These six trumpets, where do we find ourselves in this chapter? These six trumpets of God's judgment have already sounded. And then we have a pause. Yes, we got a pause before with the unsealing of God's plans. And so we have a pause here, the last chapter in this chapter. And whenever John makes these pauses, he's always answering the questions that are on the reader's minds at this point. God divinely knows what his readers will be thinking and wondering and asking at this point and So in the midst of all this judgment, in the midst of seeming increasing evil and demonic forces and these weird locust-like creatures kind of exercising their torment on unbelievers, it raises a question for the church, for the early church that was reading this. What about God's purposes for the church? So first of all, in the first Paul's, we saw that what about the church? What will happen to us? And, And the answer was, you're sealed, you're sealed, you're safe, you're secure. Now, the question that rises for the readers, well, what about God's purposes and plans for the church? And so in chapter 10, we just saw that last week, that God's purposes stand firm. This picture of this angel standing firm, one foot on the land, one foot on the sea, having dominion over everything, holding the open scroll, and then giving it to the church to carry out his plans. The church's purposes stand secure. God's purposes for the church stand secure, and he has gonna carry out his plans through the church. As the church takes up his message, eats it, consumes it, and speaks it out. And that message is both sweet because we have the assurance of the gospel. The gospel is sweet. We're a part of his plans. We get to carry out his words. And yet it is also bitter because it's words of judgment. And it also means suffering for us as we proclaim God's judgment. And so the word is sweet and bitter. It's what we saw in the last chapter. And yet John's now continuing to answer this question of What about your purposes for the church? And so we see that in this context. Okay, this makes sense of this chapter. What about the church? What is the church supposed to be in the midst of all of these trumpets blowing before the final trumpet sounds, before that last day, before in this interim period, before he brings all things to completion? What is the church supposed to be? What's the church supposed to do? And that's the question that John's answering here. And what's the church supposed to be and the church is supposed to do? It's clear that God's purpose for the church will stand. His plans for the church will stand. And the very first thing we see in the, in the first verse or two is that the church will be preserved. The church, what about the church? The church will be preserved. You don't have to wonder and worry in the midst of all the tumult and and all the problems and circumstances and and God bringing judgment on the earth and weird demonic forces opposing the church's plan and mission. You don't have to wonder if you will be kept safe. You will be preserved. This is meant to bring us comfort. We see that God tells, tells John to bring a measuring rod. Now, what in the world is that all about? A measuring rod. In, in, in those days, someone would measure their property. They would take a rod, they would measure their property so they would know what their boundaries were and they would know what it is that they have to take care of, that they're to protect and preserve and to care for. In a similar way, when we first bought our house, we, we mapped out the property lines. And I'm, I'm guessing that many of you do the same kind of thing when you buy a home. We mapped out the property lines and I thought, okay, what's mine to protect? 
What's mine to keep safe? What's mine to watch out over? I don't worry about my neighbor's yard as much. I mean, I, I kind of generally look and see what's happening in my neighbor's yard, and I, I want to make sure that you know, not, nobody's doing anything nefarious over there. But really, if somebody comes into my yard, then my senses go up, and I'm alerted, and I'm protecting because I know my boundaries and know what I have to protect and to care for. Um, that's a weird beeping noise in case you're distracted by that. If you all want to check your phones, cut them off. That'd be a great time to do that right now. So <laughs> this rod that he takes up, it's a measuring rod and it's meant to indicate that God knows what's his. God knows what belongs to him. God's measuring out. And he tells John, I want you to go and measure something. And he doesn't just have him measure the temple. He has him also measure the worshipers. Now, is he measuring their height? Well, no. So we, we, this is not a measurement of, of physical dimensions. This is God saying he is measuring. He is, he is laying out what is his own. He is laying out what belongs to him, and he wants John to go and measure. I want you to see. Go and see the church that I have. Measure that out. See the people that I have, the worshipers that I have. Measure them out because those belong to me. And the word there he uses for temple is actually the word that's used for sanctuary, the inner sanctum, the inner sanctuary of God. He, he measures those who belong to God closely, who are in God's presence, who are worshipers of God. And what does it mean when he's referring to this temple? Well, if you remember when, when Jesus, when he breathed his last, what happened to the temple curtain? You can shout it out. What happened to it? It was torn in two. And that was an indication that no longer... Is the physical temple of the earth necessary? And no longer would the physical temple be around. Instead, now, God's ultimate temple is Jesus, and then he would make us his temple. Now, the dwelling place of God is with men. And so when he refers to the temple here, it's not referring to a, temp- a physical temple, a physical place. There is nothing in the New Testament that looks forward to a physical temple being rebuilt. The, the temple that's being rebuilt here is, is God's people. The temple that's being built is his his purposes and plans in his people to build a temple for himself. And how do we know that? Well, the New Testament tells us that in many places. All throughout the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 3, 7, 16 and 17 says, do you not know that you are a temple of God? The Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Ephesians 2, 21, in whom the whole building, not talking about a physical building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Earlier we saw in Revelation, in the context of this book, it says, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, he's not talking about us becoming physical pillars, becoming concrete. But he's talking about us being in his temple, his people. And then at the end of Revelation, we, we know what's happening here is talking about his people, not a physical temple, because in Revelation 21.9, an angel comes to John and says, come, I'll show you something. He says, I'll show you the bride. I think we have this, Revelation 21.9. Can you pull that one up for us? I think it's the next one over. There we go. Perfect. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a high mountain and showed me, so here's what he was going to show him, the wife of the lamb, the bride, and here's what he showed him, the holy city, Jerusalem coming down from heaven. The holy city, the temple, the people of God, the city of God, the people of God. And then in Revelation 21, 15, 
The angel does something else. It's the only other time we see this measuring rod being used in, the, in, in, the, in this context of this book. It's the angel takes up a measuring rod. And he measures with this measuring rod that's made of gold, as pure as costly. It's a perfect measuring rod. And he measures this true city of Jerusalem where there is no temple in the city. Revelation 21, we see though, he says, and I saw no, Revelation 21, 22, and I saw no temple in the city, for his temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. The New Testament uses the temple is always used of, of either believers, metaphorically, or us in him in the New Testament. Ever since the resurrection of Christ, ever since he went to be with God, the temple is no longer an earthly place. And the altar is a place where sacrificial worship took place. It's a place mentioned in Revelation 6 and 8, both where the martyrs were. So this is God's people, his holy temple being measured and known. This is meant to be assurance to the church that you are known by God, that he marks you out, that you are protected and kept safe in his holy sanctuary, his his inner sanctum. You, You are in the holy of holies. Spiritually, you are completely protected and kept safe you are dwell, your dwelling places with God in, in his holy city, in his new Jerusalem. You are protected, you're measured, you're kept safe. He knows you, he knows your boundaries, he knows who are his. It's the same picture we saw in the measuring read of Ezekiel. God's intention is to secure his own. And, and here's the, the thing that happens in Revelation 22. After this angel goes and measures the temple, the, the result is, is that... He says, there'll be, there'll be no more night. There'll be no darkness. Nothing unclean will enter into there. What is that a picture of? It's a picture of God protecting and preserving and keeping his temple, his people. He keeps them safe. He protects them. He preserves them. Nothing unclean enters in. So we are protected, preserved, and, and kept in heaven. God secures his own. No one is left outside. This is an account of safety and security. But look in verse 2, though. There's something interesting there. So the sanctuary, the place where his holy presence is, he, the people of God, the worshipers, the true worshipers in, in spirit and truth are, are, are protected and measured. But he says something strange. He says, don't measure the court outside the temple. What is that? Well, keep reading. He says, leave it out for it. It's given over to the nations. They will trample the holy city. Now, whenever the holy city is spoken of in the New Testament, it is, it's not a physical place anymore. It is the holy city of God. It's God's people, his, his dwelling place with people on the earth. And so what it's saying is that although we are kept safe and protected and preserved, God will allow the nations to some degree to trample, or at least trample underfoot for a time, the people. But we can stand secure. We can stand confident. We can be comforted that we are kept safe, even when the church looks like it's being trampled. The church will be preserved so we can be comforted. And what else is God trying to communicate here? Well, the church will be his prophetic witnesses. There is a purpose for the church. And that's what we'll see in in, in beginning in verse 3. The church will be his prophetic witnesses. You know, when I used to work for my dad, he had an excavation company when I was growing up and I used to go and do work for him, and, and I, I would go, and I would work long hours, and I would work hard, but I, I really didn't enjoy it very much. I tried to enjoy what I did, and that was great, and I tried to find enjoyment in anything I did, and that, that was fine, but, but I didn't want to do that long term. It, it didn't have a purpose for me. It, it, paid, it paid me money, 
It helped my dad. That was good. I, I wasn't looking at it from a, a very kind perspective. I was looking at it from a self-seeking perspective. And it didn't really have a purpose for me. So I was like, nah, I don't want to do that. But when we got a house that was our foreclosure and um, we needed to do some construction on it, um, I actually was excited about it. The work wasn't any more enjoyable necessarily, but the work had a purpose. You know, if you lack a purpose, it's, it's very difficult to not only be motivated, but to see what's God up to, what's God doing. God wants you to see that not only are you secure in him, does his purposes stand secure, we saw that in chapter 10, is does he, has he protected you, has he measured you, you're safe and secure in him, you are his temple, you are his church, you are his people, but he also wants to see that you have a purpose. You're to be his prophetic witnesses, and look in verse three and four, he says, I'll grant authority to my two witnesses, they'll prophesy, and then he explains who these witnesses are and how long they will do that. Two olive trees, two lampstands. Now, why are there two witnesses? Are these actual physical people? They might be. It might be God's, it might be physical people. It might be people in the very end. I, I, I think that it's probably more than that, though, because this entire passage is symbolic. The temple is speaking in a New Testament terminology, and witnesses, whenever this word is used in the New Testament, it's speaking of those who proclaim or witness on behalf of Jesus. Now, there's two but it speaks to them as one all throughout because they speak together as one voice and they, they do things, they, they bring about plagues as one kind of one voice and they're, they're actually killed as one and then they're resurrected kind of as one. And so I think these two witnesses are the same. It's the church, but just like in Deuteronomy, there was, there was two witnesses that testified legally that two people had to be called as witnesses to bring judgment. And so the church is called as his witnesses to bring judgment. Now, where am I getting this from that this is the church? You should be asking that. You should always ask that when anybody's preaching. Where's he getting that from? Well, look at what he calls these two witnesses. He calls these two witnesses two things, synonymous with these two things. So these two witnesses are what? The two olive trees, and then there are also the two lampstands. Now, we've seen that word lampstand before in Revelation, right? And Jesus actually himself explained what the lampstand is. And the lampstands are the church. That's clear. So now, now we know, okay, these witnesses are lampstands. The lampstands in this context in Revelation are the church. So these witnesses are the church. And you think, well, where have we seen these olive trees referenced? And actually, it's all throughout the Old Testament. All throughout the Old Testament, you see the references to God's people as olive trees. Zechariah 4.4, 4, these trees refer to those who are anointed to serve the Lord in all of the earth. They're anointed. It's like the fruit of the olive tree. We see in Psalms and other scriptures that, that his people are called olive trees. Now, I don't know if it exactly relates, but we also see in Romans, Paul, when he speaks of how there's this wild olive tree and the church has been grafted in as this, I mean, sorry, the, the, his Jews, his, his original people who believed in him were this natural olive tree and the Gentiles, this wild olive tree grafted in. And so the church is referred to as olive trees in the, not of the Old Testament, but the New Testament. It's also the lampstands are the church. And they have this function, these witnesses, this church, the church this has these functions. And we saw also in Zechariah, it kind of represents these two different witnesses represented both their civic testimony and religious testimony. And so there's probably an aspect of that here as well, that we're to give testimony both civically and how we live our lives, but also in our religious testimony as well. 
And these witnesses are empowered. Now, we saw that before in, in the book of Acts. In, in the book of Acts, one of Jesus' very last teachings to his people when he was on earth, right before he ascended, after he had died, been resurrected, come back, spent days along with his disciples, and he says to them in Acts 1, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be what? My witnesses, same word, both in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, to the remotest parts of the earth. This is the ultimate fulfillment of the witnesses of Christ. They're granted authority. They're standing as lampstands before the Lord. They're testifying. They're shining light as those who serve God, the Lord of all. And they're granted authority to prophesy for 1,260 days, same number as 42 months, the same if you read in both Daniel and Revelation as time, times, and a half a time. It's three and a half years. It's symbolic language saying it's, it's not... It won't last forever, but there's a period of time that we are going to be called in this interim in between all these trumpets blowing of God's judgment that we're called to bear witness until the end. There's a time when Daniel was asking about these things he had heard as well and the judgment was shut up. Now we see that it's unfolding in Revelation, explaining what this time means. Revelation 12, 13 and 15, it talks about what will happen in this interim period. The same, I believe it's kind of talking about the same thing here. When the dragon saw he'd been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman. That's the church, who, who, God's people, who had given, given birth to male child. But the woman was given two wings, the great eagle might fly from the serpent to the wilderness, the place she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The church will thrive and, and bear witness. It's appointed by God to bear witness, to be his prophetic witness in the earth. And these witnesses prophesied, just like Peter talked about in Acts in Jerusalem. And after the day in Pentecost to happen, Peter gets up and he stands up in Acts 2, 17. He says, it shall be in the last days that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy and your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall see and dream dreams on my bondslaves, both men and women. I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy. This is the prophetic witness of the church. Now, what happens if people don't obey the prophetic witness of the church? Look at verse 5. If anybody would harm them, fire pours in their mouth, consumes their foes. If anybody would harm them, it's how he's doomed to be killed. Now, you could take it as these two are literal people, and that's fine. But if you also read it, okay, this is, this is God's witnesses, his church. What happens to those who don't obey the gospel testimony, the gospel command to repent and believe? Well, we'll see that they are actually consumed by fire. That's how they're doomed to be killed. Revelation 20, 14 tells us that then death and Hades thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 21, 7 tells us the same thing. One who conquers has his heritage. I'll be his God. He'll be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all the liars... Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And then these witnesses are apparently given the same kind of prophetic power that both Elijah and Moses had. They were given power to, to bring drought and turn water to blood and strike the earth with plagues. And they prophetically call people to repentance and warn a coming judgment. Just like the church today is meant to call prophetically to repentance and a judgment to come. The message of the gospel we preach is the power to save and the power to judge those who don't repent and believe. 
the same time, I think there's something here for us as well to believe that when we pray, God answers our prayers and God will do mighty works in response to our prayers. What's the church supposed to be and do in the middle of trumpets of God's plan of his judgment on the earth before that final trumpet sounds? Well, the church will be preserved. The church will be as prophetic witness. We'd be confident in our calling. But here's something else that you see in this passage. The church will be persecuted. So the church will be preserved ultimately. Ultimately, we'll be kept safe in his sanctuary. The nations might trample us. We'll be kept safe in his sanctuary. We have prophetic witness. But we will be persecuted. We might die. Something for the church to, to see here, to not be surprised by, to be content, to be confident, to not be surprised, as Jesus said, when we are persecuted. To not be surprised when we're hated. If they hated Jesus, he says, if you hated me, they'll hate you. And I like in verse 7 here, don't miss out on the first five words of verse 7. Look down at verse 7, the first five words there. And when they have finished, we're meant to have assurance in that. When they had finished their testimony. That, that word for finished, it's, it's the same word for it being perfect or complete. When their testimony had been brought to perfection, brought to completion. That doesn't mean you're going to be perfect testimony. I, I don't mean that. But when God had make, makes your testimony complete. When it's your time, not before your time. When the church has born witness, given testimony to Jesus, to the gospel, to God, not before then. No one can keep them from completing their, their giving their testimony. When they finished giving their testimony, the appointed end that God has planned, the beast is allowed to make war on them and he will conquer them. Or at least he appears to. Now we've seen that word conquer already in the book of Revelation many, many times. All throughout, he's talking about that we will conquer ultimately as we persevere to the end. And the church in Smyrna, the church in in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, they were facing persecution. He says, hang on. You're going you're gonna to be put in jail for a period of time. And you're going to be waiting a time. And some of you are going to die. But don't worry because if you persevere to the end, you'll conquer even through death. And that's what we see here. There, 1 John 4 says, You are from God, little children. I've overcome them because greater is he who's in you than he's in the world. This is, this is meant to give us comfort here. We're not to be surprised when the beast, when the enemy makes war on the church. Don't be surprised. Don't shrink back. Don't think this is unexpected. Don't feel like, oh no, I must be doing something wrong. The devil is opposing me. Sure he is. You're testifying of God and his grace and the goodness of Jesus in the gospel. You're going to be opposed. And 1 John 5, it tells us how we overcome. Whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Revelation 2.11. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the church. Spirit says to the churches, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. And then we know later after this passage, we know that ultimately, though it might look like the church is dead at times, you know, we don't, we don't have this, 
this idea that you don't see this in Scripture that the church is going to continue to grow and grow and grow until the church overcomes everything and there's no more unbelievers and everything gets better and better. We don't see that picture in Scripture. But God always preserves a remnant. And in Revelation 12, it tells us how we overcome. It says in Revelation 12, 11, and they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb, the lamb who was slain, who overcame by being slain, and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. How do we know this is about persecution and martyrdom? Well, I think Revelation makes that clear. Here's the good news, though. In Revelation 20, it says, I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. I saw the souls of those being beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God, those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Revelation exposes the conflict that we are involved in. It exposes the violence that we are opposed with. It exposes the fact that the devil will make war on us through the world. There's no gray here. It's black and white. There's good and evil. The beast is diametrically opposed to the testimony of the witnesses of Jesus Christ. And yet we can be confident and content in the midst of that, knowing that we are kept safe. We're engaged in this deadly conflict. We live every day for Jesus and share his name and we might be killed. It says in verse eight, their bodies will lie in the street, symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified, the place of opposition to Christ and his name. And then it's for a period of time, three and a half days, people will gaze, refuse to let them be placed in the tomb. They're killed in this Sodom, the place of egregious sin, Egypt, the place of captivity, the place of the people who oppose Jesus. They're killed in the city of man. There's no honor for them. There's this complete picture of complete disdain and hatred. If you can imagine this, this is meant to be vivid imagery of complete disdain, hatred, desecration for the people of God and saying, uh, we, we, we don't even want to respect anything to do with them. And actually, we see that in part even now. If you read the news, there is not a lot of respect for believers. Don't be surprised by that. Be assured, stand confident. You can be confident that God, God's purposes for the church, what's church supposed to be and do, we're secure in him, he, he's measured us, we're safe in him, we're supposed to be his witnesses, we're going we're gonna to endure persecution, don't be surprised, it might even appear that, that that name, that the witnesses of God have been killed, it might appear that the church has become very small. There might be a time coming in this country where the church becomes small as it has in other countries. If you look in other countries, people wonder, what, is it, what's happening to the church? There's persecution happening. But God's protecting and preserving. Same time, people on the earth, we see this even now, look in verse 10. People dwell on the earth rejoicing over the defeat of Christians, making merry, exchanging presents. Why? Because they've been tormented. They were tormented by being called to account. They're tormented by, being, by having to confront their sinfulness, by being called to repent of their sinfulness. That's torment for those who do not believe. Don't be surprised when people think you are hateful when you tell them about the judgment of God, but the mercy of God in the gospel. Don't be surprised when they feel like they're being tormented, when they can't bear it, 
And they just want you to stop. Unbelievers rejoice over the death of the witnesses. They're glad to be rid of these troublesome witnesses. Some of the extreme hatred that we see today when people stand up for Jesus and the truth of God's word. You can see that in vitriol of recently when those who have been standing up for the unborn and we've seen this, this hateful vitriol against them, people who are trying to protect life and they're saying that you're awful and I wish bad things would happen to you, wish you would die. You see that happening today. This kind of vitriol, this kind of hatred of calling for what's good. It's a culmination of the hatred for God's people because they speak God's words. But Jesus prophesied about that kind of hatred in Luke 6, Luke 6, 22. He says, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you, when they spurn your name as evil. Let's read that again, all right? Let's read that again. How many of us think about being blessed when people hate us? Anybody just raise your hand. Like, I'm just so blessed people hate me. Now, if it's for his name's sake, that's awesome. But it's not our first reaction. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you. Nobody likes to be excluded. That's what was happening to the churches in Revelation. They were being hated. They were being excluded. They were being reviled. Spurned as evil. And they were tempted to give up. They needed this passage in Revelation to encourage them to be comforted, to be content in the midst of persecution, to be comforted, they're secure, they're safe, to not be surprised. Jesus goes on to say, blessed are you, people hate you, they exclude you, revile you, spurn your name as evil. I don't like people spurning my name as evil. He says, on account of the Son of Man. Oh, on account of witness. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets, to those who witnessed and will be witnesses just like the prophets. And people will hate us and kill us. But we should not be shaken. He's measured us. He's kept us secure. He has a purpose for us to proclaim the good news of his kingdom and that there will be persecution, but the persecution will not last forever. There is a shortened period of persecution. And I think that's what those days mean and those months mean and the time and time is a half a time. All those are, it's, it's a half of seven years, half of perfection, half of completion. So we will be persecuted, but it won't last forever. It won't endure forever. It won't endure, won't go on forever. There will be an end to it. God will bring an end. And it's what Jesus said. If he had not brought an end, then no one would endure, and yet he has brought in, he will bring it in. He will not allow torment to go on forever. He will not allow persecution to go on forever. The church will be protected, preserved as witnesses and persecuted, but only for a limited time. And then here's the wonderful thing that we look at lastly is what happens to these two witnesses. Look at what happens to these two witnesses. It didn't stay dead. It didn't stay dead. The church will receive the promised resurrection. That's what, that's what God has. It's the intent that he has for this. And see that the church is not, even though it might seem dead, it might look defeated, it might look like it's been overcome, it has not truly been overcome. Why? Because it's secure in the sanctuary of God. Our souls are kept safe ultimately and we know that the church will rise again, that his people will rise again. All of us will one day receive this promised resurrection that we see here. The beast may have killed them, but they had no, the beast has no real lasting authority over these witnesses. You see that? The beast supposedly overcame them, but has no real power because he has no real lasting authority over them. 
Don't fear those who kill your body but cannot kill the soul. The beast doesn't control their final destiny. The beast does not control your final destiny. No matter what evil assails you, the the devil does not control your destiny. No matter what happens, no matter what people do to you, they don't control your final destiny. The beast could not kill them forever. This this murder is not the final word. Their bodies being desecrated, left in the street. Unbelievers gloating is not the final word. The breath of the life, the spirit of God enters into them. Isn't that a wonderful picture? That, That word for breath, it's the same word that when God breathed his life into Adam, from the clay, he raised him up from the ground. This is a picture of the resurrection life that we have in Christ, him, him breathing his life, his spirit into him, us and, and raising us up from the ground. It's the same word used for spirit, actually. Out of the 345 times this word occurs in the New Testament, it's only translated as breath three times. All other 342 times it uses the spirit. And so God's spirit raises us to life, is what you see. Their bodies may have been defeated like their Lord Jesus. The devil thought he overcame on the cross. But in Christ's death and in his resurrection, he truly overcame and showed that he has power over death. He has power over hell. He has all of the power over life and death and his spirit, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, now dwells in us and will surely raise us as well. That is what we see where the beast killed God's breath, gives life and makes him stand resurrected. Shall be cheering right now. Here's, here's the wonderful thing that they hear, that the church hears, this witnesses here. Look in verse 12. They heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. We can be sure we'll hear this. We can be confident we will hear those words, Come up here. And they went up in a heaven to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. They could do nothing. Here's, here's the implication they could do nothing to stop that. Their enemies just watched, and they saw that that was really God. We can be sure about the same thing. How do I know that? Well, it tells us in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. Paul writes, says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, whose bodies are in the ground, that you might not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him all those who have fallen asleep. Verse 16, he goes on to say, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. Come up here. With the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet. Oh, you get that language? The sound of the trumpet of God. And, with the, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The the church appears to have been conquered by the devil, but just like Jesus appeared to have been conquered, he conquered. The lamb conquered. And I love the image we saw in Revelation chapter five when it says, worthy is the lamb to take up the scroll. Why? Because he's conquered. How did he conquer? By being slain. We conquer? We might be slain like Jesus, but we conquer as we hold fast to our testimony even unto death. We conquer by the word of our testimony if we love not our lives. How are we living today? Are we confident that we're kept secure in him? Are we living as his witnesses? Are you shirking back? Are you surprised by persecution? Tempted to give up? Tempted to give in? Tempted to be despondent? Think the devil was winning? 
be encouraged here. Be confident, be secure, be comforted. Be confident in the promises of God. One who conquers, God will be our heritage. We will be his sons and daughters. We overcome by faith. And we see the results of what's happening here. There's an earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, the rest were terrified, gave glory to God in heaven. And there's the implication about how through our testimony and through God raising us to life, that he will bring about the salvation of many. Whenever giving, people give glory to God in heaven, that's, that is, that's, that's people acknowledging him as Lord. So he's, he's going to use this to bring many to himself. What happens here, it's, this is meant to encourage God's people. No matter where or how our life ends, we will rise. We're secure in the sanctuary of God. We have a purpose here and now. Yes, we'll endure persecution. It might appear that we're beaten, but we are not. We will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, and we will rise. Our accuser, he claims to own us, but he has no authority over us. The accuser of the brothers has been hurled down forever. The very ground in which we lie will one day open up. Our spirits will go to be with him immediately. Our bodies, until the final day, are in the ground. But one day, our bodies will be resurrected, brought out of the clay by the breath of life. Reunited soul and body, dwelling in God's presence forever. He will Return, and he will bring all of his own that he has measured home. That's what we see here. The church is preserved. We can be comforted. We're prophetic witnesses. We're confident in our calling. Content knowing that we'll be persecuted as a part of his plan. And we can be control, truly consoled and confident we're going to be resurrected with Jesus. When I love the old hymn, When Christ Shall Come. With shouts of acclamation, what joy shall fill my heart? Because we know what will happen, what the church should be and do. We can endure all things through Christ who strengthens us. Amen? I'll have the band go and come up and we'll sing a song of worship in response. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you that your word is meant to encourage and comfort and sustain us, give us confidence. Ultimately, we overcome in you. Thank you for this hope-giving word. Lord, I pray that you would give all of us fresh faith that we are secure in you. God, I pray that you would, where we have been lax in our witness, that we would speak up and be prophetic in our witness, that we speak your words, Lord. We have a purpose. Let's not neglect that purpose, God. Would you empower us for that purpose, God? I pray as well that we would not shrink back in persecution, that we would not be surprised, but we'd be content in all things. And then, God, I pray that we would have extreme hope and joy in the resurrection promise that we have in you. God, would you breathe fresh confidence in us today as a result of your word? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.